You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode 37 of Meet the Farmers. We're heading west this time to Wiltshire, where I went to speak to mixed farmer and chief executive of the Soil Association, Helen Browning. Helen took on her family's 1,400-acre mixed farm, which is rented from the Church of England, from her father in the mid-1980s, and has since made the farm organic, as well as founding Eastbrook Farm Organic Meats and the Helen Browning Organic Brand. If that wasn't enough, she's also taken on the village pub, which she runs with her partner Tim, because it's called the Royal Oak at Bishopston. It's really worth checking out. I had my lunch there on the day. The farm has also recently started an agroforestry project. In the past, Helen's been Director of External Affairs at the National Trust, and for 14 years she chaired the Food Ethics Council. The Soil Association has been key in her life, and she was a trustee from 1993 to 2003, chair from 1997 to 2002, and was appointed its chief executive in October 2010. Helen was awarded an OBE in 1998 for her services to organic farming. So without further ado, let's head over to Helen. Helen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I know you're incredibly busy. What I want to start with is what I saw on your website uh, when you go on straight away, live for today, farm for tomorrow, um, which is it's one of those phrases that my grandfather used to say it all the time. It was very much his go-to way that, way that he farmed and way he lived, and that went through my dad, and, and he's trying to instill that in me as well. What does that mean to you? Well, I think, as you say, it, it's a saying that's resonated through our lives as farmers. For me, it, it resonates because I think there is something about that really long-term view that you have to take in farming when you're thinking about the land and you're thinking about, you know, as we're doing here, planting loads and loads of trees that we won't even see come to maturity. Yeah. Um, that responsibility for the next generation, for the generation after that, which should be right at the heart of the farming ethos. And yet the joy we need to take um, in every day that we have on this earth and uh, the fun we need to have in doing the good things for the long term. And as a sort of organisation here, I guess that's very much the way we live it. We want to give huge pleasure to people who come here to walk the farm or come to the pub and stay with us or eat our products. Um, you know, it, life has got to be, while we're saving the planet, we've got to have fun. And I think appreciating the extra this extraordinary world and allowing ourselves to enjoy it whilst we do the right thing in the long term feels like the way in many ways the whole environmental and farming movement needs to go. Tell me about the farm here at Eastbrook. You're a mixed farm. Um, tell me about your various enterprises very briefly. Okay, so we ha now have, as of this spring, two dairy herds, uh, one autumn calving down in the village here, uh, one spring calving herd up at the Downs, a new herd. We rear all the calves from those two herds um, for beef or for heifer replacements. Um, and then we have, we grow some arable crops, slightly less than we used to, um, spelt mostly now wheat, barley and oats. Uh, we uh, have our famous 
saddleback sows, British saddleback sows, about 200 um, sows rearing about three and a half or 4,000 uh, pigs each year, uh, all outdoors, all organic, of course. Um, we have, or my daughter has, and her husband, a sheep flock of about 1,000 Romney ewes. Um, and then our latest venture is agroforestry. Uh, we're planting lots of fruits, nuts, biomass, timber trees, experimenting and also trying to do some things that we hope will work commercially. But obviously there's quite a long lead time between planting trees and starting to harvest them and lots of barriers and challenges along the way. But that's a, a real passion of mine. So, yeah, we're doing lots of stuff here uh, on the farming side. And then, as you mentioned, we're also selling those products to people through supermarkets and other retailers and um, and doing the hospitality thing with the pub and the chop house, a restaurant in Swindon. You mentioned your agroforestry. Uh, what are your soils and was that decision to undergo into agroforestry driven by soil or driven by other factors? So the farm is long and thin. It's about five miles long and half a mile wide. So we run from really light soils on the very top of the downs, really high organic matter soils uh, on the downs, on the chalk, and then down across uh, silty clay loams over chalk, down to the village. And then once we get below the village, we're, up, we're getting on to increasingly heavy clay soils. So where we've planted the, the agroforestry, is on the very heavy clay, very wet ground at the bottom of the farm um, on a bit of land that actually I now own, which means I can do these things, um, which is harder to do on on rented land. And uh, so we are experimenting with what will uh, thrive on those very heavy and quite wet clay soils. In researching for this episode, uh, I listened to your Desert Island Discs episode with Kirsty Young. (laughs) Um, In that, discussed your five great aunts. Yes. Tell me about them. Oh, they were amazing. A lot of my ancestry seemed to hail from the Red Marley, Lebri kind of area. Mm-hmm. And the five aunts lived at Park Farm, Red Marley, and they were spinsters. My grandfather was one of 11, two boys and nine girls, and five of the girls farmed together there until they all popped their clogs um, some 20 years ago. And uh, as children, we went there very often, and I, was, I just loved the life they were leading. Yeah. It felt to me as though they had that sort of independence that I, at the time, as a child, wasn't seeing that women really had. So the fact that they were going to market and they were farming and making dairy products and drinking whiskey and basically having what seemed to be a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, there was a great spirit. They had great you know, energy and enthusiasm for life. And they lived in this wonderfully ramshackle large house, um, which my mother, you know, was horrified at because it had none of the mod cons. They didn't have any of that. You know, it was, it was, uh, but it was just a more stripped away lifestyle, but independent. And they were inspirational women, all very different and all playing very different roles within the, within in the farm there but uh, I loved love what they did I loved them and I guess it was uh, part of my early inspiration that yeah you know I could go and farm and live a independent life which was one of my early motivations yeah clearly they were a big influence I assume your father was also an influence on you um, and anybody else as well 
my father was a big influence in that, you know, it was amazing to be able to tag along behind him as I was growing up. And he was, unlike many male farmers, was actually very enthused and supportive of yeah. my the idea that I wanted to farm. It's always hard to know who were your heroes or sort of influences. I think coming into contact with the organic movement more widely and meeting one of the reasons I've been so enthused about organic farming, uh, not only about the system itself, but about the people and remarkable entrepreneurial people who have broken the mould, actually, in many ways. So, you know, people like uh, Peter Seger and uh, Dougal Campbell um, and Bill Starling and Patrick Holden. They're all these kind of great people that I started to spend time with in the sort of uh, late 80s and early 90s and just found a whole community of people who were doing really different stuff. While we're talking about your great aunts, I want to stick on women in ag. We're at a time now where we have you leading the Soil Association, we have Minette Batters leading NFU as well. Is this an optimistic time for women in ag? Yeah, I think it is. I think that the uh, the barriers are breaking down. I think we've got many more role models around. When I started doing it, it felt I felt like a bit of a freak show. Um, and uh, now that's very different. I think there are more, many more women running their own farming businesses and doing it very well. I think women have always been involved in farming, but they just never took the credit for it. They yeah. were often doing all, all of the management behind the scenes. But I think women are coming into their own. I still think there is a need for more um, on the practical front. And I particularly would like to see more women coming into professional farm management you know you've got some people who are lucky enough to run their own farms as I do um, but very few people who are managing uh, farms for other people um, as a as a career so I think there's still much more to do but I really welcome I think women bring a different perspective into the mix that's not saying that you know you can never be binary about these things but I think that uh, you're seeing both more women in farming but you're seeing particularly a lot more women in the environmental movement too um, if you look at the number of women that are heading up the bigger environmental NGOs that's always that's really remarkable too now so I think getting a bit more influence in in all quarters but I think again there needs you know I'm, I'm keen to encourage more through. You went through quite a difficult period of, of your life um, when your brother died at a fairly early age soon after he got married um, and you then went to Australia among other experiences as well tell me about that period um, in terms of how formative that was. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, having something really dreadful happen to you, I was 18 when Philip died, in some ways makes you bolder because you realise that A, life is very short, you just don't know when it's going to stop, and B, when something really bad has happened, it takes away a bit of the fear. Nothing could be as bad as that, so a lot of the things that you might worry about, your self-consciousness or your you know, fear of failure or whatever, you, I certainly found that experience was just a real wake-up call to make the most of every moment you have and yeah. do the best you can with what you've got. So, yeah, it, it was... Live, live for today, it to is, it is, ways. it is. I think, you know, you just don't know what's around the corner and... Uh, in a way, I think, you know, say having something so dreadful happen so early just meant that uh, I've 
decided not to waste a moment or an opportunity if I possibly can. Those things that happen in, in families are, you know, deeply difficult. Um, and I think, like a lot of people who've been through that sort of thing, I had a period of real uh, depression for, uh, for a period of time and I needed to run away. And I did run away. And actually running, getting off to Australia was in itself, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a really good experience because not because it was particularly enjoyable for big chunks of it, but actually that standing on your own two feet at... 19 and you know being in a completely different country without a support base really um, gave me confidence that I could look after myself so having those adventures was you know I think quite an important thing in terms of developing my own resilience it's one of those things actually about traveling alone isn't it as well it's it's very easy to look back on an experience in with with a good light but actually it's but it, it's the challenging times that are important in life uh, but when you travel and you are completely self-reliant um, I think actually they're, they're quite having think about it now there's there's quite a lot of reflections actually between coping by yourself traveling and coping on a farm yeah anyways and coping any that, that sense of self-reliance yeah absolutely I had a I, I spent quite a long time I took I bought a van and traveled around a lot of Australia worked periodically in different places and uh, was traveling solo for the vast majority of the time and you have to kind of start to read what's going on around you try and make sure you're keeping yourself safe um, and cope with your own company <laughs> um, but it so so yeah it, 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 it I think it was a really formative period of time and probably put me in a in a position where I was able to take on uh, this place also quite young without completely blowing up. And you obviously you knew for a long time that you wanted to go into farming. You went to Harper Adams yeah. um, to do a degree in agricultural technology. As part of that, um, and we were chatting before we started recording about Barry Wookie. Yeah. Uh, his book on, on his farm is, is uh, one that had a big influence on me. And your work is, is referenced in that. Um, with ADAS, which is the successor of the National Agricultural Advisory Service. Tell me about that time and perhaps how the... Because I think you, you, were, you were comparing Barry's organic fields with neighbouring conventional fields as well and yeah. looking at a whole range of, of different criteria. How did, that, how did that shape the way you thought? Well, that was hugely formative because uh, I was starting to get interested in organic ideas when I was doing my, while I was doing my degree um, and this opportunity came up to become the research student on the first, as it was Ministry of Agriculture then, uh, funded piece of research on organic farming and as you say we were comparing, matched fields, um, organic and conven neighbouring conventional farms, for a whole range of parameters. So we were looking at things like weed populations, earthworm populations, yields, disease levels, some of the finances. Yeah, the economics as well. Yeah, um, nitrate leaching, looking at, at the leakage of, of nitrates from different farming systems. Loads of stuff. And it was an amazing experience because I learnt more in that year about farming and about organic farming than I would ever have learnt from another 10 years at Harper <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because it was, it was you know, I had to really understand the life cycle of the various pests and the carbon cycle and nitrogen cycles. And, um, and it gave me the sort of building blocks in many ways that uh, allowed me then to come back here and start to try and put together an organic farming system when there was less advice and support than there is now um, in order to, to sort of try and make that happen. So, yeah, it was a really, really helpful year um, spending... It was... It, it was it, the farm is largely up on the edge of Salisbury Plain, yeah. so 
freezing cold in the winter. Sort of, I remember spending a lot of time augering soils through the permafrost. <laughs> but really fascinating. Learned a lot about things like earthworms and stuff. I've, some of the stuff I've probably forgotten now. But yeah. it was a, it was a great year. When did you begin the organic conversion here at Eastbrook, and and how did that go down? So actually, we converted one field before I came back to the farm because I was one of my obsessions was phosphate release from. Uh, different soil types. One of the challenges within organic farming or any farming system is that recycling of phosphate. As part of my final degree project, I was doing some work on phosphate release from calcareous soils. So I converted one of the fields here to continue some of the work that I'd started on a research fund. I'd always been really interested in research and still am. And so when I came back here in 86, having finished my degree, I had a 20-acre field that was already converted. And we started then running uh, trials on different types of farming enterprise to see what we might do on the farm as a whole. The conversion of the whole farm started in earnest the next year in 87, and we basically converted about 200 acres a year as it came into the lay phase of the rotation um, over the next six years. And at that time, there was no support, no financial support for going organic, so we had to make sure that the cash flow for the whole farm would work. Especially as a farm tenant as well. Especially as a tenant. Um, So we started in earnest in 87 and finished in 94. You're perhaps particularly well known for your work with pigs. Um, For listeners who don't know, what are the key differences between an organic pig unit and a more conventional system? Obviously, conventional pig units take many forms, um, but uh, on the organic front, they're outside all their lives, so you're you're breeding and finishing outside. We're not weaning the piglets until they're at least eight weeks old, so a lot longer than they would stay with their mums in a conventional system. We're not allowed to uh, teeth cut or tail dock or nose ring, um, so they, there's sort of much lower mutilations, um, and they're fed, obviously, an organic diet, um, and they have to have forage in their diet as well, so even if the paddocks are a bit bare during the winter, you're supplying forage as well. So it's a very different sort of free-range life for an organic pig, and the health status tends to be very high because they're, uh, you know, they're not stressed, um, and they're getting plenty of fresh air. So it's a, it's a system that here we fold them across a lot of land over the years, so every time a sow farrow she's farrowing on a clean block of land that hasn't had pigs on it for seven or eight years and every time they're weaned they're going on to another block of land so it's a system that rolls around the farm and uh, provides lots of fertility for arable cropping afterwards so it really is a system that's integrated within that wider farming system. Why do you like working with pigs so much? Well, I I started, I mean, I I didn't grow up with any experience of pigs at all here. We never kept pigs here. So that really was born out of my experience at Harper, where when I was, um, we were given a project by our lecturer there. First of all, he took took us to all these kind of supposedly state-of-the-art pig and poultry units, and they were like something out of hell, as far as I was concerned. And I thought, if that's the future, if that's the way we're going to keep our farm animals in the future, I want no part of it. Um, so one of the seeds that was sown then was the idea that that I would want to champion high welfare ways of keeping particularly pigs and poultry because they are our most abused animal. I think, you know, to, to, to beef and sheep in this country are largely still free range, but pigs and chickens have a pretty hideous time. And at the, in the 80s, they were probably almost at their worst. I think we've, you know, we've improved some of our conventional farming systems since then. Um, so it was a bit of 
Oliver, um, I want to have a crack at this. So when I came back here, I very quickly bought a couple of gilts in pig gilts um, and farrowed them down and started getting some practical experience in pig keeping. And it kind of grew from there um, very slowly initially. We sort of learned as we went and started developing products and that kind of thing. Pigs are good from a number of points of view. I mean, A, they're the most abused animal, so actually doing something about them felt like a good thing to do but also you can use all of the pig very easily and um, you know you make so many great products from pigs um, and uh, and products that everybody likes to eat so actually it's much easier to build a, a, a marketing business on pork than it is on beef for instance because uh, you can make your bacon and sausages and you know riette and and lardons and all these things that people eat whereas actually with beef it's much harder or with lamb it's much harder to find uh, the added value opportunities that there are through pork. The point's been made quite a bit regularly uh, that eating food is an ethical minefield in many ways, yeah. um, especially at the moment with various movements going on. You chaired the Food Ethics Council mm. and you're still involved. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the Food Ethics Council, what its aims are, what it's trying to achieve. As you can tell, because I've been involved for so long, I've been such a fan of the Food Ethics Council for, for many moons. Uh, it's a small charity, but it really helps us to think through what should we do, all things considered. So really trying to give people the tools to think through some of these really thorny areas, you know, whether how we should be, what we should be doing and how. Because sometimes it's very easy to jump to a knee-jerk um, you know, whatever happens to be in the media this week is the immediate answer. Everybody sort of dives off down a certain road. And the FEC stands back and says, OK, let's look at this from every perspective, from obviously a, a, a humanities perspective, but also uh, taking into account farm animals or, uh, you know, the, 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 the wildlife or yep. people in different communities and try and uh, make sure that when we're making a judgment call about what's the right thing to do, that we've taken all those perspectives fully into account, that we've looked at all the, uh, we've looked at this in a sort of balanced way. And I really like the rigour of that kind of thinking. Um, I think we need to have food systems, um, well, in fact, everything with ethics uh, at their heart. You know, we need to be doing, encouraging um, people to be doing things for the right reasons. And I think but some tools to help us think through things objectively are, is such a helpful discipline. Then there's the Soul Association. Yeah. How did you first become involved and did you expect to become so deeply involved? I never expect anything. <laughs> One sort of rambles through life and things happen. Uh, but I think, uh, so I became involved with the Soil Association quite early on, but, um, initially as a licensee, of course. Yeah. Um, and that's how I first bumped into them, really. And then I got involved with British Organic Farmers, which was a farmer organic support group, really, and chaired that in the early 90s um, and then worked to bring the food, British Organic Farmers and the Organic Growers Association which had been sort of offshoots of the Soil Association back together again we just okay. don't need constant splintering so I then became a trustee of the Soil Association and as you know chair uh, a few years later and then left and then came back again in, mm. uh, as a member of staff initially as a food and farming director and then left again and then came back as chief exec so I can't seem to quite leave the Soil Association 30 years on um, and uh, 
keep doing things in different guises. And I guess one of the reasons for that is that I love the breadth of what the Soul Association is doing, that whole uh, understanding of, you know, the, the health of soil, plant, animal, man, that kind of real deep philosophy right at our um, right at our core. And the fact that we are, I think, walking an interesting line between trying to get the environment right, the animal welfare right, uh, the biodiversity right, uh, the farming economics right, mm. uh, and that you understanding that we need to be working on all those things at once rather than just trying to pick off the odd silo here and there. So I think that, for me, the philosophy of uh, trying to make sure that you're developing solutions that meet a multiple of objectives rather than just becoming uh, very focused on one. It's much easier to explain to people what you're doing if you're just saying, oh, we're saving the, the panda or whatever it might be. Um, but if you're trying to, to sort out climate change, the biodiversity crash, obesity and malnutrition, animal welfare and antibiotic over-reliance, uh, nutrient uh, pollution, you know, you end up with a different basket of solutions uh, than you would do if you were just looking at climate change or just looking at animal welfare. So I think that uh, that breadth, that holistic approach really appeals to me. And the fact that we're working with a really broad community of people from dinner ladies to foresters to farmers and, and growers and politicians. And, you know, I think that we need we need that holistic thinking to be a much bigger part of the mix. And the Soul Association does that in spades. Are you ever able to take a holiday? <laughs> yes, I do. So you are incredibly busy. Yeah, it's, it is. It is a lot of. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, and when I'm not on holiday, it feels like um, it, it, there's a lot of plate spinning. But we do take breaks so because I should, I should have said you're able to relax when you're on holiday. I suppose. But yeah. No, I do. I do. I, I'm, I'm lucky in that I do actually um, have an ability when I get away from here, but I have to leave here to be able to properly relax. Yeah. Um, and we do, but we do try and take a couple of breaks a year because otherwise you get incredibly stale and run down and exhausted and then you're no good to anybody. So you mentioned your Desert Island District interview, I think it was actually, that sense of isolation was, would be the one thing that you might struggle with. The survival aspect, you'd probably, yeah, you'd probably be fine, but the, the sense of isolation might be, and this is a very contemporary topic as well. Listeners, again, I just want to give another shout out to Hashtag Farmer Mental Health and also Rachel Brown. Uh, Rachel Brown has started a, another podcast called Farmer in Mind. Please do check that out. Um, but it, it is mental health and farming is a difficult subject to talk about because we don't want to damn the subject. We don't, we, we don't want to make it seem that's, that all farming is like this all the time because it, it's you and I know that it's a time of ups and downs. It's, it's an industry of flows. It's a, it's a job of flows um, and, and it changes. But that idea of putting livelihoods at the heart of a business and putting people at the heart of a business, which I know is very, very close to your heart. Do you think that element is lost in many farm businesses today? Have we lost that people as a driver of, of moving, of success, I suppose, as a driver of success? Well, I think a lot of farms um, have many less people on them. You know, if you look back 40, 50 years ago, farms would have had a higher employment and when you've got more people around, maybe there's less isolation. You've got a lot of farmers who are running uh, units pretty much on their own or with maybe contract labour coming in. So I think that's where some of the isolation comes from. And you've also got a culture of people who are very proud and very independent um, and possibly find it quite hard 
to network or to ask for help when they need it. So I think you've got a couple of things there. And I think as, as farmers are becoming incre increasingly specialised, mm. I think that's got worse. Now, we've gone the opposite way here where we, you know, we have loads of people involved at all, in all sorts of ways and we employ a lot of people. And so it's incredibly kind of, you know, it's a vibrant, busy place and it doesn't feel very isolating, quite the opposite. <laughs> um, but most farms are not like this one these days. Um, and I think that when you're... And farmers feel that they are custodians of the farm for the next generation or, you know, and the, that pressure can be yeah. quite high, actually, in lots of ways because if they fail, if they feel close to failure for any reason, and, it's not, you know, there are many reasons why it's very hard to succeed in farming, then I think they take that very personally and it can be really undermining of mental health and confidence. I would like to see more people on the land so, so and, uh, and more sharing of the burden of responsibility mm -hmm. to make this work in the longer term rather than it feeling uh, like it all sits on the shoulders of somebody um, who is trying to do that uh, without the support network that most people in most other walks of life would have. From people in farming to people in your community, you made the decision to take on your village pub. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, uh, because because uh, because every village needs to have a vibrant pub, and uh, we had the slightly naive thought that you know, okay, it's right in the middle of the village, it's between the house and the office, we can kind of manage it on the way through in the morning, um, and uh, you know, we took it on in a burst of enthusiasm and. Uh, it's been brilliant, but very, very, very hard work to get uh, going initially. Mostly, mostly Tim's baby? Uh, very much Tim's baby, absolutely. I would never have done it without um, uh, him, his enthusiasm, and it's his energy that's make, that makes it work. I mean, yeah. I, I kind of pop in and out, but I don't do anything very life. much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, then we, and then, you know, two years ago, we added 12 rooms, so we've now got a little hotel on site as well. Uh, so it's busy 24-7. Um, and that's a completely different ball game in itself from running a pub with you know where, where it was mostly about eat it feeding people and and drinkers uh, and then we took on the chop house in Swindon um, two or three years ago as well so we've got another restaurant in Swindon so yeah we are gluttons for punishment um, <laughs> I have to say but again it brings huge numbers of people um, onto the farm chance for them to learn more about it, it we have amazing walking um, and everybody wants to go and do a tour and see the pigs and see the calves and all that kind of stuff so it's a great way of engaging with more and more people you, you are the face of your brand mm. in many ways was that a decision that you took personally or was it a decision that you were advised to take uh, it was a decision, uh, really. That I think, again, it was sort of Tim's decision, really. When he came here as sort of initially as sort of marketing manager and we were doing a sort of brand review, he was absolutely adamant that it should be um, my name on the door, as it were, to be able to personalise that far more. So, yeah, it was, it was his call. And it felt a bit weird in lots of ways, yeah. and it still does occasionally. I've got kind of used to it, but it, I still don't do sometimes think, and I can see how people are like, oh my God, you know, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, and do, do, do you find that people, sorry, I'm just really interested in this. Yeah. Do, you, do you find people come to the pub because it's, it's association with you? 
Well, I think that we've got, you know, what we're trying to do is create a kind of network of businesses that yeah. reinforce each other. So people sometimes come to the pub because they bought the bacon or the sausages or the fresh meat or whatever it might be, and they've seen on the pack that we have a pub and then they want to come and see the animals themselves, so they come and stay here. Or people come and stay here and then they discover the brand, and then I wrote a book last year. So, you know, there's all these things kind of slightly uh, work together, I hope. Um, and sometimes I'm rather shocked to find that people have come because they want to, you know, to meet me or to, you know, to, to sort of come and check out the place, which is lovely. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had some lovely people here last week or the week before from South Korea who, you know, they'd, they'd found out about us ages ago and then they'd come over wow. and they just come to, came to stay. And Amazing. it was, yeah, it's lovely. So it's a, it's a great, it's, it starts to create an amazing, I mean, the number of people we meet from all walks of life, from all around the globe here. Um, and, uh, you know, they, sometimes you just can't put enough time into all of that. But that sort of developing of a network of people who um, really care about these things are all trying to learn together. Yeah. And for me, in many ways, the pub and what we're doing here is part of that live for today thing. It's part of that um, I don't want to be preaching to people all the time. I'd rather they came here, ate great food, thought, why is this so fantastic? Uh, and, you know, walk the farm, could, can see the difference and felt that they wanted to uh, get involved or to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of support that way of farming a bit more rather than being on a soapbox all the time. I'd like to lead people through pleasure as much as through lecturing. You've achieved a huge amount in your life so far. Is there anything else that you'd still like to do? That could be, a, even though that's learning a musical instrument or something. <laughs> Oh God, there's always, it feels like there's loads still to do. And I feel, I feel we've got, I mean, I feel that farming is on the cusp of another era of change. So in many ways, I'm proud of what we've done over the last 30 years here, but I feel like we, it's time to go again. So where we've got to in organic farming systems, it's one of the reasons I'm interested in agroforestry. I think we will need to reinvent our farming systems again. There are new opportunities, new knowledge, new, te new technologies even, uh, that I think that in 10 or 15 years time, what we do, what we're doing today, which is, you know, I hope a big step forward, but it will feel uh, like we've moved on a lot more. So I'm really um, not at all complacent about where we are and where we need to get to, and I really want to be part of helping that happen. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the lines are being blurred between systems as well, so there are more more farmers are looking to other systems and influences from organic which which must be an exciting time. Uh, they're really exciting I think you know uh, I, we, we both at the Soil Association want, want to support those organic pioneers and make sure that organic both continues to get uh, bigger and better um, and uh, but we also really want to share what we're learning and learn from others too because nobody's got all the right answers here there's an amazing generation of new young farmers coming through who are doing some amazing work there's a real urgency about the way we manage our land and how uh, that needs to be addressing the issues of climate change and the biodiversity crash. And so I think um, being part of that huge and broad movement still feels really exciting. I think that's a good message to end it on. Helen, thank you so much for speaking to me. That's been, been really, really enjoyable. Um, and while I'm here, I look forward to having a look around the farm. Great. Thank you, thank very, you very much. So I assume that you spend most of your time in Bristol? Yes, Bristol or London or wherever, you know, it's taking me. So 
uh, this week is unusual. I've had three days here and um, t taking, uh, doing a mix of soil association and farm stuff just to try and catch up. Um, and, but most of the time, I'm usually in Bristol a couple of days a week and then in London a couple of days a week. Or, and we've also got this office in Scotland, so yes, up there course. a bit and, uh, and then, you know, just wherever it needs to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to give you a bit of a view, we won't go all the wood. Yep. That's the sort of downland up there. Yep. This is the Ridgeway here running through the farm. This is where the pigs were over the winter. This is where we've put a pipeline in up to the new dairy, a, a, a new electricity supply and uh, water supply up to the new dairy um, just up there. Okay. There are the new new dairy herd just below the foot of the downs. Um, so gives you a bit of a feel that's spelt up in front of us. So, yeah, this is... Love it. Oh, it's, it's an absolutely it's an, stunning setting. It's a, it's a beautiful, isn't it? But here, we talked about the pigs earlier on, here are the growing pigs, so they're, once they've been weaned in these kind of uh, paddocks with their litter mates, um, and, um, and then the, the farrowing sounds are just over here. What are you feeding? So we're feeding a pellet there, which is a mixture of grains, pulses and soya. Yep. Um, and uh, so we, we grow some arable crops, but we also buy in some feed. Organic soya, what's the footprint on that? Yeah, we're as strict as you possibly can be in yeah. international supply train chains about making sure it's not coming from land that has been uh, recently deforested, so all land has been deforested at some point. And obviously the soya itself is non-GM and non-pesticide yeah. and all the rest of it. But um, I think we'd much rather be moving towards homegrown proteins for pigs and poultry and as well as for a lot of the dairy cows. I mean, here we, we use very little soya, mostly peas and beans and dairy cow rations. Um, but um, the pig, pigs still do require some soya in the mix. So I'm really interested in some of the work that's being done looking at growing soya in the UK. Because it's quite a good crop, actually. There's nothing Absolutely. wrong with it as a crop. It's just it's being grown too extensively in the wrong way in the wrong places. Um, so, uh, and then people are also experimenting with things like lupins. Yep. Um, we've been, one of the projects the Soil Association runs is called Innovative Farmers, which is a farmer network of people um, wanting to solve their own problems. We provide some grant support and research support to do that well. It's interesting with Innovative Farmers because you do attract a, a broad range of farmers to those sessions, yeah. coming from very varied backgrounds. Which is one of the great things about it. It's not just you know, it's it's people, anybody who's interested in farming more sustainably. Yeah. Um, you and, yes, you don't even need to be a farmer to go. You no, know, exactly. So it can be you know, and and I think there's a lot of energy around. It's not for everybody because not everybody wants to be doing research or you know trialing things or whatever. It's it's very much for the leaders, I guess. Mm. Um, and uh, but I really like the mix of organic and non-organic, mm. and that sharing of learning and expertise um, and. Uh, some of the projects are fascinating, really, really interesting. And I think there was one recently on um, on alternative feeds for pigs and poultry. You know, in an ideal world, pigs and poultry would not be feeding on grain or soya that is in competition with humans. They would be f using waste streams. Um, and uh, so I'm for a big fan of the, the the idea of livestock on leftovers or on you know uh, livestock aren't competing with us, but they're supplementing or using waste. Getting that to happen in reality is a much bigger challenge and needs a lot of work. Um, but that's where they, you know, they ought to fit. I think pigs will always are waste recyclers, really, historically. 
um, and you know, as we look at the sort of challenges around climate change and everything else, and uh, you know, that's what they need to go back to, really. So this is, um, we've got several different things going on here. This is um, just a, a native woodland that we've planted here um, with a view that it could be in the longer term used for uh, livestock browsing. I'm you know, interested in how you can, uh, how animals will self-medicate mm. and being able to um, use tree crops as fodder as well. So that's going to be a long time before we can do that in here, probably at least another 10 years. Mm. Um, but uh, the initial plan was to put a strip of woodland in here to protect the agroforestry from the prevailing wind. Uh, it's such a wet field that I thought, well, let's put a little wood in, proper wood in, yep. with some nice paths in it, um, and uh, think about being able to use it in that way in the longer term. Um, and then beyond that, we get into uh, the agroforestry proper, which are unlike the barn field that we've just gone past, where they're on 10 metre row spacings. Uh, here we're on 25 metres, so that, or 24 metres, so that you can, if you want to, uh, arable crop or yeah. horticulture, it's far too heavy for that yeah. here, um, or graze, as we're doing at the moment, yeah. um, between the, the rows of trees. So it's sort of opening up. Not necessarily the Stephen Briggs model, but um, more, more sort of akin to uh, that possibility. It's uh, yeah, so it's a, it's like a more diverse version of what Stephen's doing. Yeah. So he's done it with apples, um, yeah. and um, uh, and but it's very much that kind of you know that uh, that line of thinking. And we're but we're it's a silver pastoral system here, so it's trees and grassland, which yep. apparently is the best way to sequester carbon. That's the most um, you know, if you can bring more trees into your great grassland management, uh, it's um, hugely helpful. And uh, you've got all the biodiversity benefits and productivity benefits of bringing trees alongside your, your crop or your grazing. What is your personal view on, on public goods and public payments with public goods? I think there's obviously a lot of debate about <laughs> how do we define public goods and all the rest of it. Um, but I think it's entirely right that the, that the public money is directed towards things which are not things that should be paid for by your market for food. I mean, it is, it is bonkers if we have to direct funding at supporting food production. Yeah. That is you know, genuinely a market. Well, I think the direction of travel is right, but the devil's in the detail of how one implements some of this stuff. Here's some lovely heifers. They are beautiful girls, aren't they? Aren't they? Um, they've got a couple of blocks at the moment, two or three blocks, but we would normally take, have, put them in a block for a day or two days and then uh, move them on. Um, so they are, we're experimenting with that sort of rapid, almost mob stocking of, uh, of grassland as a way of trying to, again, sequester more carbon more quickly. Yep. Um, and I think we're all learning a lot about grazing management and how, uh, how we can both... Um, get the best out of the grassland, the best out of the animals, but also sequester as much carbon as quickly as possible too. Okay, that's fine. I'll keep an eye on emails over the weekend and um, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do something on Monday. All right, thanks a load. Cheers, bye. Sorry. No, don't worry. Um, how, so many, uh, how many times a day does your phone ring? <laughs> 
Well, actually, not that often. I'm quite careful about who I give the number to. Um, but uh, when I when I see no caller ID come up, I know that it's uh, something important. Because yeah, I suppose in some ways you're, you're expected in many ways to have everything in your head. In your head, all, all the, time. the time. And yeah. Yeah, and it's, it is quite hard to... to make sure that you've got you're making the right points quickly enough you know so on that kind of thing what keeps you going what, what, what drives you because this is yeah oh the f- i mean you know this actually, is a life that not everyone could live no, no no the love of the land drives me i just think this world is an amazing place yeah. and i'd like it to stay that way um so yeah i feel very driven by all of that and i feel for and and re-inspired and reinvigorated by the farm itself so you know the, the whether it's the pigs or the trees or the whatever i my downtime is largely spent walking this place and loving it and remembering why I do the rest of the mad stuff I do because you know I'm probably yeah it's about that I'm very lucky to have a life where my kind of more practical life here is absolutely aligned to the Soil Association's sort of mission and vision and to be able to sort of play back between those two those two parts of my life in a way that I hope is quite helpful in some ways Um, and uh, but yeah and then sometimes I just need to go run around a lot and um, forget it all for 10 minutes (laughs) a hard game of squash is my is my reinvigoration well actually sometimes reading and stuff like that but I think for me it's usually about violent exercise (laughs) um, as a way of because then you can't think about anything else other than you, Not dying. the racket and the ball, and yeah, yeah exactly. staying out of the way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, but I mean, you know, overall, we are unbelievably lucky um, to live at this time in this place, and um, and it's a huge responsibility too, actually, trying to do the right thing, trying to work out what the right thing is, because it's not always straightforward. This is not black and white stuff. That you know, yeah. one thing is good, one thing is bad. So, you know, we talked a bit about the Food Ethics Council earlier on. In a way, that's why I like that sort of challenge to your thinking about, uh, you know, how one should look at some of this stuff. What really is the right thing to do? Um, mm-hmm. And you have to have the headspace too to just think things through a bit more and not get into the group think. You know, everybody's jumping on in one direction and that's the obvious answer. If you looked at it through plastic, the, the plastic debate, for instance, everybody, okay, plastic's bad, everything else is good, and it is by no means as straightforward as that. And yet it's very easy when uh, the, a wide public goes down one route to think, right, that's what we've got to do too, even though um, we, we know it is much more complicated than that. That's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. And I want to thank Helen for giving me some of her time and for showing me around the farm. Next time, I'm off to Norfolk and I'll be speaking to arable farmer and contractor Kit Papworth. So I hope you can join me for that. I'm Ben Eagle and this has been Meet the Farmers. You can catch all previous episodes at thinkingcountry.com or the last 10 episodes on iTunes where it would be great if you could also leave a review. If you have any general questions about food farming or the countryside that you'd like me to ask in future episodes, please do get in touch with me. Uh, My email is thinkingcountry at gmail.com. I also want to give a little shout out to someone who is an integral part of the podcast but rarely gets a credit, and that is Tom Bland, who does a lot of production work behind the scenes. So thank you, Tom. I will see you next time on Meet the Farmers. Mm -hmm.